Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 398. William, winning friends and influencing people is for suckers. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Jonathan, Catherine, and Richard for signing up already. Do you remember that holy man who asked Edgar the Atheling to confirm his abbacy of Peterborough? just after the Battle of Hastings? Well, that guy's name was Brand. Now, the previous abbot of Peterborough was Leofrich, and he had actually marched to Hastings with Harold. But Leofrich, like many people at Hastings, didn't make it. So the job fell to Brand. And Edgar gave him the old royal go-ahead. But there was a problem with that. Actually, a pretty big problem. The appointment was made during that period when Edgar had been proclaimed king. But now Edward wasn't king. William was. Now, of course, William's rise to the crown was politically awkward. And if anybody paused to think about it, they might have some serious questions about his legitimacy. But the best defense is offense, I guess. Which is why William was now running around England questioning everybody else's legitimacy instead. You know, just muddy up the political water until everyone seems illegitimate. And eventually, even the concept of legitimacy holds no real meaning, and nobody even wants to think about it, and is just too exhausted to care about the ancient custom that said that only legitimate children from royal lines could even be declared king. And even then... Only the Witan could actually select a king from that limited group. Instead, you make this thing messy enough and no one even wants to think about that. So destroying the concept of legitimacy was a key strategy for William. Because William wasn't legitimate in any way. He was a bastard, which was not allowed. He was from an outside family line, which was also not allowed. And the Witan never chose him to be king. The guy was 0 for 3. And you only need to look to Poitiers to see how anxious William was about this. Because Poitiers, out of nowhere, writes, quote, And if anybody asks the reason for this blood claim, it is well known that he was related to King Edward by close ties of blood, being the son of Duke Robert, whose aunt, Emma, the sister of Richard II and the daughter of Richard I, was Edward's mother, end quote. So a bunch of name checks there to say that William was distantly related to Emma and how King Edward was Emma's son. Okay, seems legit, except for one teeny tiny problem. Emma wasn't English at all. She wasn't part of any English dynasty prior to her marriage to Athelred. So it was just a marriage link. And that was a link that you could argue was broken when she up and married Canute. So William's links to Emma were about as relevant to his blood claims on the throne as his favorite color. It was a non sequitur dressed up to look like some kind of point. Which honestly makes me think that Poitiers would have absolutely loved the internet. 
The truth was that William's real claim to the throne, his only real claim to the throne, was that he had just killed the last guy to sit on it. And in English custom, that was not an ideal way to become king. In fact, there are entire reigns that were considered cursed simply because they were linked to rumors of someone being in the vague vicinity of a regicide. But here you have William not just being in the area of a regicide, but basically being all, hey guys, remember that time when me and my boys murdered your king and pretty much your entire royal line, not to mention damn near all your nobility? That was awesome. So yeah, culturally, this was not a good look. So I suspect that's why we have William tossing shade at anyone and everyone who could claim he was illegitimate. But the trick with lies that are this big is that once you start going, you can't take your foot off the gas. And I think that's why William's documents tend to claim that Harold was an illegal usurper or they just completely ignore his existence altogether. And I think that's also why the short reign of Edgar the Atheling is all but erased. William was Edward's successor, you know, somehow. And everyone should just ignore those other guys. Politically, this really was the only move that William can make. But try as he might to hide it, Harold and Edgar were both proclaimed kings by the Witan and they have both acted as kings. And that left people like poor Abbot Brand in a tough spot. Because when it came to abbots and bishops, it was standard practice that you couldn't really hold those offices unless you were confirmed by a king. And Brand had his position confirmed by King Edgar the Atheling, who William was now taking the position of Edgar the who? And that's a tough spot for Brand because he really couldn't do his job unless he himself was considered legitimate. Meaning that even though he'd already had a king confirm him, he would need to get this new king to confirm him again because this new guy was getting all weird about the previous confirmation. And yeah, you're not imagining things here. William was throwing norms right out of the window while also insisting that those same norms still had to apply to everybody else, you know, so long as it suited William. It's absolutely infuriating behavior. And the only thing more annoying is the fact that there were so many members of the aristocracy who were just going along with it. And so, despite the absolutely bizarre logic behind William's complaint, Brand decided to show submission to the new king and beg him to confirm his appointment as the abbot of Peterborough. Again. But this was William, a guy who was famously suspicious and vengeful even by medieval standards. And William lost his shit at the thought that Brand had already discussed this abbacy with Edgar. Now, William would likely claim that his anger was a response to Brand's disloyalty. But I doubt that's the real issue. Instead, I suspect the main issue here, in fact, probably the only issue, was that Abbott Brand sat as indisputable evidence against William's big lie. There had been a previous king. He was acting as a king, and other people had been treating him as a king. And not only that, but that previous king ticked all three boxes. That's bad. 
And we're told that William's rage about this situation was so bad that Brand couldn't even discuss the matter with the king himself. And actually, Brand's situation here was even worse than you'd assume, because he'd also previously granted lands to the monastery back when this had all seemed like a done deal. And as we discussed earlier, William had a very specific view on the legitimacy of prior land grants, especially when they involved people that he considered rebels, or, it seems, dirty, unfaithful monks. So Brand didn't just need to get his position confirmed. He also needed to get those lands sorted out. Otherwise, they were likely to get parceled out to one of those bloodthirsty knights that William kept around. So the new would-be abbot was out of options. He had to make this work. And the holy men decided to handle this conflict the way that you would handle it in middle school. Or in a particularly messy divorce. Like a divorce between middle schoolers. Basically, they decided they'd just pass notes through an intermediary for a while before they could figure out whether or not the king could get beyond Bran's history with another royal. Now, unfortunately, version E of the Chronicle doesn't go into detail about how this was resolved and whether or not William burst into tears and told Bran that he wasn't invited to his birthday party. But it appears that there were a lot of people who were intervening on Bran's behalf, including, it seems, Archbishop Eldred of York and the Sheriff of Lincolnshire. And in the end, the issue was resolved exactly as you'd imagined. Because while Brand totally was that other guy's friend before William even started at this school, and that's completely not fair, there was something that William wanted even more. Cash. Ultimately, the hapless Brand had to pay an eye-watering fee of 40 marks of gold to get the king to guarantee his estates that he'd already given to the monastery just so he could move past this whole conflict. And to be clear, that is a staggeringly large penalty. It breaks down to about 240 pounds. And to put that into context, if you, fellow average person, worked for 120 years and you didn't spend a single penny of anything you made, you might be able to afford that fee. That price was so ruinous that some historians suspect that this was William trying to make an example out of Brand, and in turn, threatening pretty much every other landholder in England. And keep in mind, Brand was somebody who was approaching William and recognizing his full authority as king very soon after his crowning. Meaning that he was probably one of the earliest members of the English aristocracy to come to the new king and ask for his judgment in that new role, thus providing a degree of legitimacy to his new reign. And this was how William treated him. Even if William's position as king was secure, this really was bad ruling strategy. And William's position here was anything but secure. We've already discussed how his handling of the earldoms and other titles was haphazard at best. And worse, his decrees were shot through with obvious avarice, cruelty, and shallow favoritism. William started out insecure, and he was only making it worse even when people came to him and treated him with the dignity of his office. In fact, things were bad enough that Poitiers himself admits that William was forced to abandon London personally and relocate to Barking, 
quote, while fortifications were being completed in the city as a defense against the inconstancy of the numerous and hostile inhabitants. For he saw that it was of the first importance to constrain the Londoners strictly, end quote. Constrain the Londoners strictly? The Norman invading forces had burned and looted homes in London to celebrate a Christmas coronation. I can't imagine what they'd feel justified to do if they were ordered to constrain someone. F***ing yikes. And as for those fortifications they were building, well, it looks like there were two of them within London. One was plonked down on the city walls just to the west of St. Paul's. It was a massive fort, which eventually became Montfichet's Tower and Baynard's Castle. And if that structure remained today, it would roughly overlook the Millennium Bridge. The other fortification was a little ways further along the North Thames. And no, this wasn't the White Tower. Not yet. What the Normans were constructing at this point needed to be built quickly. So it was built out of wood, as fast as they could manage it. But it was at the site where the White Tower would be built, and where it still sits today. This fort commanded the river approach to the city. The Normans plunked it down at the corner of the old Roman walls, where they turned north. And by putting it near the river, and also at that corner spot of the city, this new fort echoed the fortifications at Rouen. And replicating Rouen makes sense, as having a fort in a location where it can control movement into the city and also along the Thames was just useful. And it was also strategically familiar. So, you know... No need to reinvent the wheel. Though I do wonder if the architects were also looking to stamp the distinct look and feel of Norman life upon the capital. And I wonder if they did this to make a deliberate statement. Or maybe if they just thought that the Norman way of living was just the proper way of doing things. Either way, though, soon all the English had to do was look up the river to see that their ways were being set aside for the custom of these new masters. And remember, these were fortresses, not churches, granaries, halls, fortresses, two of them. The medium was the message. This was an occupation. And that's all before we even consider how Poitiers tells us that the Normans thought it was necessary to constrain the people. And Poitiers, in spite of all of his spin, reveals the growing resentment and hostility of the conquered peoples that was boiling up around William and also the anxiety that it was inspiring among the conquerors. And I think it's notable that Poitiers takes a break from lavishing praise upon William to start admonishing the English people. Quote, And you too, you English land, would love him and hold him in the highest respect. You would gladly prostrate yourself entirely at his feet. If putting aside your folly and wickedness, you could judge more soundly the kind of man whose power you had come. End quote. That's a lot of bragging and commands. And it sounds like insecurity to me. And if it was, William was right to feel it. The people of England barely knew him, and already they were taking a dislike to him. But ever the hype man... Poitiers tells us that in this early period, William was passing the wisest, most just, and just bestest of laws for the people of London. And when we look at William's writs regarding English law, we can reasonably surmise that what Poitiers was talking about 
was that William declared that all of the laws of King Edward would apply to his rule as well, and that every child would be his father's heir. So William was stating that there would be a continuity of English laws and a continuity of inheritance. Kind of. You'll note that he wasn't promising to uphold the laws of King Harold Godwinson, nor Edgar the Atheling. In keeping with the general theme of Norman rule, those two were being written out. And on the matter of inheritance, remember, he was making a lot of people buy their own lands back. Furthermore, Harold had left heirs behind. But you'll note that his children were not being treated as his heirs. But the promise itself sounded good. Saying that you're going to provide continuity in English laws would have helped bolster his position in England a little bit in those early days. But I suspect that people were already figuring out that he was kind of full of it. Because if you look closer at those early documents, you can also see glimmers of dissent appearing in even his own written records. For example, in one of the writs, someone brought up Harold, despite the fact that the Normans really didn't want Harold being discussed in any of these documents. And even worse, he was referred to as a king. And interestingly, that particular writ was for a grant of land to King Edward's former chancellor and priest, Regenbald, a man who very well may have been involved in drafting the writs that established the legal framework of William's early rule. And yet King Harold Godwinson got snuck into that writ. These seem like they are small acts of rebellion in the scheme of things, but it does appear that the spirit was clearly there, even amongst the scribes. And as all that was going on, Poitiers tells us that English nobles were coming to submit to William and gift him all their property. And as we'd previously discussed, that would not have been the case. Handing over all of your property to the king was not how the English did things. And at best, Poitiers is describing a misunderstanding on the part of William. But more likely, it was an overt assertion of power where William was basically taking everything and daring anyone to call him on it. And Poitiers assures us that in these early days, William, quote, kept his mind free from avarice, as from other passions. He understood that the essence of royal majesty was to excel in conspicuous generosity and to accept nothing which was contrary to fair dealing, end quote. But... We know from contemporary records and from the writs and from the land deals that forced nobles to buy back their own lands at insanely high prices, and even from that bizarre story of Abbot Brand's poor treatment, that William was being neither fair nor generous. And considering the brazenness of Poitiers' lie there, and the brazenness, honestly, of a lot of the other ones. The next thing that he says makes me extremely concerned for the English. Because Poitiers tells us that William insisted his officials act in a Christ-like way and informed them, quote, it was not honorable to act disgracefully when abroad, end quote. And that he, quote, restrained the knights of middling rank and the common soldiers with appropriate regulations. Women were safe from the violence which passionate men often inflict, end quote. Yeah, that last line just kind of jumps right out at you, doesn't it? And when we look at contemporary records of certain events and then compare them with what Poitiers had to say about those events later on, it sometimes seems like if Poitiers takes the time to insist that something went one way, 
it might be an admission that the exact opposite occurred. And Poitier's statement here, when combined with the other records discussing the treatment of the public, including accidental admissions by Poitier himself, well, it gives the impression that the average English people were being brutalized. And this continued long after London was conquered. Which, in the scheme of things, isn't all that surprising. We've seen how these guys celebrate Christmas. But the official story was that William didn't want to kill Harold at all. But Harold evilly forced the conflict upon him. And that the English tried to make Edgar a king, but they failed. And besides, he didn't want to be king anyways. So thankfully, William saved him from that fate. Furthermore, William, once he was king, showed not one ounce of greed. And when he was looting the English treasury and employing a massive geld, it was actually to protect the English from the sin of luxury. And William ordered everyone under his command to be honorable and Christ-like. And if they weren't, well, it was for your own benefit. It's hard to imagine why William didn't feel safe in London. Poitiers then goes on to tell us that William journeyed to other parts of the kingdom, where he installed his companions in forts and castles throughout the region. Quote, and with them, he placed a multitude of foot soldiers and knights. To these, he distributed rich fiefs, for the sake of which they would willingly bear toil and danger. However, nothing was given to any Frenchman which had been taken unjustly from any Englishman. End quote. Really, Poitiers? Then where did the land come from? Was someone printing up new land? And considering that they were out there seizing any fortified location they can get their hands on, and then stocking it full of as many knights as they could spare, you get the sense that the Normans were all too aware that they had the tiger by the tail, and that they were in a mad dash to secure their position before anyone realized how precarious things were for them. And I suspect that it's this same insecurity behind why William was, surprisingly actually, currying favor with certain figures within the church. You know, obviously not all figures, sorry Brand, but some figures. For example, Bishop Wolfstan of Worcester was granted lands at this point. Now, Bishop Wolfstan had submitted to William along with Archbishop Stigand in that flood of nobles at Berkhamsted. And interestingly, Malmesbury claims that Wolfstan had previously been a supporter of Harold, which usually would mean that nothing good was going to come his way from William. But it looks like Wolfstan's position in the church, and possibly his relationship with Archbishop Eldred of York, had changed the metric. And so he was getting land. Though the fact that William's authority wasn't exactly secure at this point was probably a pretty big factor in this decision. First of all, because according to Malmesbury, Bishop Wolfstan was providing William with something that he desperately needed. A framing in which the English would feel compelled to accept him. Malmesbury tells us that Wolfstan began to preach about how William and the Normans had come to England because God had forsaken the English due to their sinful ways. Now, if this was true, then what Wolfstan was doing here was making a clear callback to an earlier Wolfstan, Archbishop Wolfstan of York. He was the guy who claimed that English sinfulness was the reason why God kept on letting them get their asses kicked by the Vikings. 
And weirdly, he was also the guy who was coming out real strong against slavery at this point, specifically because it was just too damn Irish. Odd guy, that Wolfstan. But if this new Wolfstan, Bishop Wolfstan, was really making these same arguments by providing this kind of framing, namely where the English were actually at fault here because they were just too sinful, and therefore whatever the Normans did to the English was actually the manifestation of God's anger, and therefore was a holy act, well, that was something that definitely would have appealed to the new Norman aristocracy. It was also something that William needed, because he and his people weren't exactly bathing in legitimacy at this point, and they were also behaving in ways that would definitely need a bit of explanation and justification. And so along comes Wolfstan, providing him the religious version of stiff upper lip. Though I do think it's notable that within only a couple years, Wolfstan actually ended up coming back to William and asked him to reconfirm his land grants. That's a weird thing to do. And it suggests that William's grip on power, and maybe even his authority to confirm lands, since he apparently had to reconfirm them, remained shaky for years to come, regardless of any godly narratives that were being spread by his collaborators. In fact, William's position at this point appears to have been so uncertain that he kept Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury around. And that's extraordinary, considering that Stigand was an ally of the Godwinsons, and William had been running around telling everyone that King Harold was illegitimate and basically condemned by God, specifically because Archbishop Stigand was illegitimate, and therefore, somehow through the transitive power of archbishops, that made Harold illegitimate. Yeah, don't think too hard about that one. The best argument they have was that Stigand crowned Harold, but that actually didn't happen. So at best, all they had was, oh, Harold stood next to a guy who we say is illegitimate and therefore something, something he's illegitimate. And here's the thing about that particular argument. Stigand was popular, especially in the South. And the South was pretty much the only place where the Normans had a grip on power at this point. And that grip was precarious at best. And yet William had come out real strong against Stigand. This situation was so bad that Poitiers was forced to admit it, saying, quote, He did not approve of the pontificate of Stigand, which he knew to be uncanonical. But he thought it better to wait the Pope's sentence than to pose him hastily. Other considerations persuaded him to suffer him for the time being and hold him in honor because of the great authority he exercised over the English, end quote. So he knew he couldn't back down on the fact that he was running around telling everybody that Stigand was bad because he didn't get his special pallium. But at the same time, he also knew he couldn't get rid of him, which again is just not a good look, especially considering that this was one of the major pillars of his own legitimacy. And honestly, everywhere you look, you see signs of insecurity in the new Norman rule. It even shows up in the coins. Coinage is one of the most concrete and widely available ways for a king to make his name and face known in a kingdom. And that's actually something that continues to this day. For example, if it wasn't for the $20 bill, do you think the average American would be able to identify Andrew Jackson in a lineup? And let's face it, Andrew Jackson was the president who was most likely to appear in a lineup, at least for now. Money is a form of propaganda. It's a way to get your face out there. And it's been used that way for a very long time. Even Harold, 
who was only king long enough to produce one series of coins, still made sure to take full advantage of this privilege. In fact, upon taking the throne, Harold had dies sent to the far reaches of the kingdom to all the major moneying centers of England. A grand total of 48 mints. And his coins were in circulation in pretty much every shire in the land almost overnight. But now Harold was dead and William was king. So getting those coins out of circulation and replacing them with William's coins was a priority. And it does appear that almost immediately the coinage began to turn over. William would be on the money now. But interestingly, even though we see William immediately set about producing coins to replace Harold, he doesn't seem to have been as prolific as his predecessor. William's coins were produced in fewer mints than Harold's. Eight fewer, to be precise. Meaning that Harold produced coins from 20% more mints than William, even though most of Harold's reign had been virtually under siege. And now that William was on the throne, the thing that he would have wanted to do most in pretty much the whole world was flood the currency with his coins and drown out all evidence of Harold. And yet, Harold still produced coins from significantly more mints. That suggests to me that while William was generally able to use the levers of power to enhance his wealth, because the state always got a cut of profit from minting coins, and while he was very motivated to get those coins out there so that his presence would be felt immediately throughout his newly acquired kingdom, he must have been aware that his grip on power in certain regions including regions that were powerful and wealthy enough to have their own mints, wasn't secure enough to warrant sending large amounts of precious metals to those regions. I have to assume that there was a concern that those metals might go missing if they were sent to certain towns. And we do know that there were certain towns that were getting pretty rebellious. And already in the record, we get hints of bandits. Specifically, bandits targeting the Normans and their enablers. That's not a good sign for an early reign. But as messy as things were looking in England, William was rather eager to get back to Normandy. The fact was, he wasn't exactly the most popular guy in Europe, and his behavior did little to improve things on that front. Back home in France, he had a long-standing feud with the ruling family of Brittany. And that feud was so bad that Duke Conan had threatened to invade and dethrone William while he was on campaign in England, only for Conan to suddenly die in a very mysterious way, which was something that wasn't all that uncommon with people who beefed with William. There was also the matter of Maine. Maine had its own ruling dynasty, just like England had. And then their count died, and William stepped forward and claimed that the county had actually been bequeathed to him. In secret, of course. And since the previous count was dead, you'll just need to take his word for it. But don't worry, this definitely happened. And if anyone found it shady, well, that can be sorted out with some marriage alliances between William's house and the people that he was looking to annex. And then later, once Maine was fully his, if those promised marriage alliances never actually materialized, well, that's nothing personal. It's just business, baby. Sound familiar? Yeah, this guy had a pretty clear MO. And just like with England, things in Maine and Normandy and Brittany, well, 
Let's just say that William was gifted at making an impression on people. And I suspect that he wanted to get back home to Normandy before anyone decided to take advantage of his absence and make an impression of their own. Now, it's also possible that he just wanted to get home and see his new baby daughter, Adela, because according to birth records, she was born in 1067, so right at about this point in time. Which is something that further colors that story of how William lost his temper and kicked Matilda before sailing off to England. Because if that happened, Matilda would have been pregnant at the time. There's just no bottom with this guy. But based on the birth records, at least the baby survived. So maybe he wanted to meet her. Though I suspect the rush to cross the channel had less to do with fatherly love and more to do with politics. There was the threat that his rivals presented, of course. But there was also the threat that his own men presented. William hadn't come to England with an army of vassals. He'd come primarily with an army of mercs. And mercs get paid. William needed to get these guys home and pay them off. Fast. So about six months after his initial landing, William and a large contingent of his mercenary army marched to Pevensey, where they had first landed. And there, he found his ships ready for the crossing. But William and his army hadn't come to Pevensey alone. He brought with him Edgar the Atheling and Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury, and Earl Edwin of Mercia, and Earl Morcar of Northumbria, and Earl Waltheof. He also brought, quote, many others of high rank, end quote, which apparently were so numerous that Poitiers didn't even bother to list them. And he wasn't doing this because he wanted to show the ruling class of his new kingdom a good time. This wasn't a wine-and-dine Norman holiday to build bonds of reciprocal trust and loyalty. William was taking the leading figures of England with him because he feared that an uprising against his rule might be growing. And Poitiers straight up tells us that he believed that, quote, the general populace, deprived of their leaders, would be less capable of rebellion, end quote. And in case the meaning was lost, Poitiers gets really plain spoken and writes, quote, he thought it essential as a precaution to hold in his power as hostages men whose authority and safety were of the greatest importance to their kinsmen and compatriots, end quote. He took their leaders, and he took people they cared about, and basically took the position of, make one wrong move, and these guys get it. Now, Poitiers tries to clean it up a little, and claims that this was actually a lovely little trip, and William's humanity overwhelmed the English nobles, and so the hostages were pleased that they were brought along with him because it increased their honor and favor. But everybody knew that William had taken the English leadership hostage. It even appears in the contemporary record, specifically talking about how he took them hostage. This wasn't a joyous trip where everybody bathed in William's humanity. And those who remained behind in England also were not bathing in William's humanity. Because William had appointed two Norman aristocrats who would act basically as his regents. William's half-brother, Bishop Odo, and William's childhood friend, Fitzosborne. And they would rule England in his stead. And their orders were clear. They were to expand Norman control and suppress the English public. The Chronicle tells us that these men were absolutely vicious in their work, recording how they, quote, harassed the miserable people 
and ever since has evil increased very much, end quote. Even Poitiers doesn't bother to hide who and what Odo and Fitzosborne were. Speaking of Bishop Odo, Poitiers tells us that, quote, the English were not so barbarous that they could not recognize that this bishop, this leader, deserved to be feared, end quote. And speaking of Fitzosborne, Poitiers tells us that he was, quote, greatly cherished by the Normans and greatly feared by the English, end quote. Rad. But as William sailed away in triumph, only about six months after he first landed, I wonder if he realized what a risk he was taking. Because loyalty wasn't exactly in large supply these days. And by leaving so soon, he was sending a message to some of the English that their new king was going to be an absentee lord. And considering how ruthless his behavior had been, and how badly his officers were behaving in his name, they might have started making plans for an alternative. Because f*** this guy. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishwhispering podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.